Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you for joining us for this uh, second session of our final day, focusing on curl chain nodes and modes, looking at different clusters and corridor developments and the infrastructure to support curl chain efficiency. Um, just before we get started, a couple of housekeeping notes and reminders for you. Um, my colleagues have asked me to um, uh, let you know that we now have uh, 370 registered attendees across six continents and 33 countries. So a truly global attendance and the largest we've ever had at Cool Logistics. So we're delighted and thank you to everyone who's, uh, who's registered. On a practical note, uh, just a reminder that for those of you joining who were maybe not able to join previous sessions or miss some, all the sessions are uh, recorded and available on playback on demand. Um, and uh, most sessions will be available in full recording 20 minutes after we finish the session. You're also able to um, download uh, the PDF presentations for those speakers who gave them um, into your conference bag. Um, if you don't know how to actually do that, uh, the team are going to be sending out some messages today and some instructions on how you can grab uh, PDFs, uh, sponsor and exhibitor materials and put them in your own personal conference bag to take away. And thank you again to all our sponsors and exhibitors. Um, and I do encourage you to go and visit their areas and see what materials they have for you. So that's it for now um, in terms of the housekeeping notes. But as ever, we're on hand for anything you might need to ask us via our help desk. So on to our second session. For those of you who joined us in the last session, uh, we took a look at developments uh, in Asia and in the Middle East particularly, um, and looked at the uh, vast booming halal market, um, both in Asia and the Middle East and increasingly on a global basis. Um, I thought it was a fascinating session. We're moving on now. Our goal today was to look at different regional markets and chains and cold chains to kind of provide a global overview um, of what's happening in different key regions for contrast and compare so we could see, you know, what's happening in different regions and are there lessons to be learnt across the regions. So in this session, I'm delighted that we're going to uh, move on and have a focus on East Africa to start from Tom Bauman, a senior project manager, Agro Flying Swans. Um, this uh, perfectly uh, dovetails with our final presenter in the previous session, Sophie Tolk from Oman, who specifically discussed uh, the desire uh, in the GCC region to um, do more trade with East Africa as a uh, source of export fresh produce and the GCC region as a heavy importer. So I hope that sets the scene for our first presentation and um, thank you Tom for joining us and I'll turn the floor over to you. Thank you. I think uh, you can hear me now. Indeed, my name is Tom from the Netherlands. Uh, I'm involved with Flying Swans. And to introduce Flying Swans shortly to you, uh, Flying Swans is a consortium of a number of companies and organizations. Uh, it consists of the Port of Rotterdam, uh, Boscalis from the Netherlands, and some more partners. Uh, but these are the most uh, well-known, I think. Our purpose is to develop 
um, logistical corridors for the export of food and vegetables from emerging countries, mainly in Africa. And this, these days we work in uh, Ethiopia, in South Africa, and we explore some other projects in uh, other African countries and also around the globe. Uh, today my presentation will focus on uh, our project in uh, Ethiopia and the developments over there. If you look at this slide, this is maybe um, mainly what you've discussed and also what you've what you see in your daily life, daily work area, modern facilities, modern ports um, with large cranes, big vessels, trains, etc. I think this is the area where most of us uh, work on these days, uh, most of us who attend this, uh, this conference this week. Um, however, uh, this has started somewhere and this has all has started very small and that is where we are uh, focusing on to start new cold chains, new logistical corridors from, um, let's say, underdeveloped areas. So our vision more looks like this. This picture is taken in South Africa, a train full of river containers from uh, a location in the area, in the country, to uh, a port of, um, of departure to the final destination. And the train is very important for us because we believe that the trains are very good, uh, also efficient and effective mode of transport to move uh, river containers and, 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 and just cargo from very remote areas, especially uh, in landlocked areas or countries like uh, Ethiopia. So this picture is from South Africa, but this is our vision for, uh, for Ethiopia. Um, although the train is, is not used so often for perishable products uh, and it has some challenges, uh, we still believe this is a very good, um, a good opportunity and mode of transport. So let's go to Ethiopia. This is Ethiopia. Maybe not uh, the picture you have in your head of Ethiopia, uh, but the country is really large. It has more than 110 million inhabitants uh, and it has different climate zones and altitudes. So uh, some areas are very dry and more like desert area. Some areas are really uh, with a lot of mountains and quite uh, highlands. Uh, and this is like the Midlands, which is very, um, very, with, with a very high potential for growing, let's say, almost each and every kind of fruit and vegetable and other crop. There's plenty of arable land, fertile soil, uh, a lot of water available, um, good uh, climate conditions. Uh, so we believe that Ethiopia has a very high potential for the production and also export of fruit and vegetables. However, the current situation is that there is very limited uh, production and more than 99% is, is for the domestic market, for the local market. There is a little bit uh, export, but only via air freight and not yet via sea freight. Um, one of the reasons for that is that Ethiopia is a landlocked country. It doesn't have a, a seaport itself anymore. 
Um, and what we try to do as flying swans is, and that's also the reason why we are called flying swans, we want to come in. Apologies, it looks like we've just lost Tom momentarily. <clears throat> Hopefully he'll be able to rejoin us shortly. In the meantime, we have a rather beautiful picture to take a look at. I can hear you. Do you can you still hear me? We can, Tom. Um, Wonderful. I don't know what happened, but it seems that I'm back. <laughs> yeah, Tom, if you can carry on. I, we can't see you at the moment. But if you can carry on talking through your presentation, uh, I'll try and fix the. I'll try and fix the visual in the background. Yes, apologies for the technical hitch, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we will get this resolved as soon as possible. Yeah. Can you hear us, Tom? This is the issue with our with our new world, isn't it? People working from home, quite rightly, as they should, but we are reliant on their own broadband systems. It looks like he's coming back on. Wonderful. Thank you, Annalise. Tom, can you hear us? Sorry, I may have spoken too soon. I'd suggest we, we give it a few more moments as it does take a little while to reconnect. And if it, it looks like we can't reach Tom, um, perhaps we will um, move on to Andrew's presentation and give Tom time to get reconnected. Yeah, so we've just had an update. His internet has gone down. He's trying to find another network. Um, let's give it one more minute. We need some background music here for everyone. Yes. <laughs> we had some yesterday, you know, of course, in one of our presentations from uh, Genevieve. Um, it looks like a Hello, Tom. Can see him. Yes, she played us some fantastic music um, doing a project out of Haiti, uh, another emerging market similar to what uh, Tom's talking about. Uh, hopefully when we can when we can hear him. OK, I think what we're going to do, actually, Tom, is we're yep. going to pause you. We're going to call you on your mobile. And in the meantime, we're going to go to Andrew. We will we will get Tom set up and he can definitely follow.
Wonderful. Uh, thank you, Annalise, and um, hope to see you and hear you again very soon, Tom. So, Andrew, you're up earlier. Is that okay? Wonderful. That's fine. Thank Wonderful. you. Well, let me just first introduce uh, to you um, Andrew Lorimer, CEO of Datamar. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, leading um, analyst and uh, knowledge source for um, reefer trade and trade in general um, along the east coast of South America. And obviously, that's such a critical market for uh, global reefer trade. Um, Andrew, um, we've worked together over a number of events and I'm so delighted that uh, you can join us today. So um, please uh, take it away. The, the floor is yours. Thank you, Rachel. Um... Thank you for the opportunity to all the cool logistics organizers and congratulations on pulling it all together. I know it must be very difficult with so many different time zones. Um, and uh, I hope to bring to you today a picture of what is happening on refer trades in on the east coast of South America uh, during this uh, very different year that we are experiencing. And so it should take about 10 to 15 minutes. We're gonna go over a few points. So here's an agenda to, to, to talk, to, to mention what we're gonna talk about. Talk a little bit about the composition of uh, exports per country on the East Coast of South America. Uh, talk a little bit about the change in volumes over a longer period of time, like 10 years. Uh, talk about China and, and the impact that that's had. Um, talk about the, uh, the imbalance between reefer and dry uh, containers and uh, a few conclusions. So just to clarify, um, Datamar is a, or Datamar is a business that uh, started about 25 years ago. Um, it works very closely with the shipping lines, with ship agencies, with terminals, container terminals, and not just containers. We also uh, track uh, non-container data. And what we do is we we work with the um, with the industry to gather data, and nowadays there's more data sources than ever before, of course, and uh, we bring information to the market based on, on, that, on, on those partnerships. So we work with shipping lines, with terminals, obviously in terms of using the data, everybody who's involved in foreign trade um, has a need for data, for reliable data. So we work hard to, to try and improve the quality of the data and make it very consistent, which is not always easy. Um, so that's what we do. We've been around for about 25 years. So to start off, this, uh, this slide shows us just the, the big imbalance that exists on the East Coast of South America in terms of what is exported in reefer and what is imported. So you can clearly see uh, the exports are the light blue and the uh, imports are gray. You can see a lot more is exported than imported. <laughs> so, uh, 
So you have uh, approximately a six to one ratio um, of reefers. So for every for every six reefers exported, one is imported. And if you look at the light blue over time, so this is since 2010, last 10 years, you can see the light blue is increasing. And this year in particular, it has increased. So this data is year to date. So it's January to August for each year. Let me just mute my... So you have um, a substantial increase on exports over time. And imports, pretty flat. Um, it was a big increase in the beginning of this decade, but it has kind of flattened out the last, last few years. So who is, which country is responsible for how much of those exports? Well, Brazil, you can see, is responsible for 75% of reefer exports. You would expect that since it's the biggest country. And Argentina second with 17, then Paraguay and Uruguay. However, when you look, as a, look at it as a percentage within the country itself, Brazil has the lowest percentage. So 23% of Brazilian exports are reefer, whereas in Uruguay, that's up at 38%, which is obviously huge uh, dependency on reefer exports. We also have, a, the next slide shows us um, the same data for imports, which although imports are much smaller, it's still interesting um, to, to have a look at. Uh, Brazil has a, a Again, the majority of imports, uh, reefer imports come from Brazil, 86% uh, of East Coast South America reefer imports go into Brazil. And it has the highest percentage, together with Uruguay, about 5% of all of its imports are reefer. This is an interesting graph. This talks a lot about um, what has happened this year uh, in the context of the last 10 years. So um, we can see the gray here is the dry or tank, where the majority of it's dry, and the light blue is reefer. And you can see the growth that, it, that reefer has every year. So these small percentages here. 29, 27, 27. So it grows at about between 25 and 30 percent per year, which is very um, interesting. Um, but you can see up at the top here. Sorry, this is not the growth. This is um, this is the percentage total. So 29 percent of exports were reefer. The growth is up here. Um, so you can see that it's been growing at 2, 3%, 2%, 1%, 1%. Flattened out in 2017, it grew at 3 or 4%, 2018, 19. And this year, it's just completely exploded and grown so much more, 7% so far this year. So, and here there's a note is that pork is responsible for 3% out of those 7% pork exports are responsible for 3% of that. Um, 
which is very interesting. And of course, that is related to China. And we will see a, a special graph, uh, one slide that just talks about that in a second. Um, looking at imports, um, you can see these numbers here at the beginning of the decade, a lot of growth. So a lot of opportunities, although the, the volumes are obviously smaller, but it still represents a lot of opportunities. Uh, I remember we did a study once and essentially um, imports are referred to talking about food, food products, some pharmaceutical as well, but mostly food. And it represents a growing, a growing market when the economy is strong and when the exchange rate allows. So you can see that's really gone down and it's pretty flat over the last five years since the uh, Brazilian real became more devalued and thus, and also there was a crisis 2015, 16. So, you know, Brazilian consumption power of the average person has gone down since then. But with a, with a strong real, there are opportunities for uh, imports. Uh, this slide shows us what's been happening with China. And um, you can see that uh, this has continuously grown the percentage of uh, reefer exports to China has grown from 10% about 10 years ago to 30%, just over 30% this year. And I was looking at the numbers actually, and um, even the volumes that have been exported so far this year in refer to China, even for just the first eight months of the year is much greater than in previous, um, in previous full years. So uh, in 2019, we had 140,000 TU exported to China for the whole year, 140,000. In 2020, so far in the first eight months, we have 184,000. So that's already 40,000 TU greater than the full year last year. And this is because of the um, new exports of pork from Brazil to China because of the swine flu that they've experienced over there and having to um, cull so much of their uh, livestock. So this shows, this, this slide shows you that the majority of it is meat, as we've been mentioning. So 68% of um, reefer exports from the East Coast of South America are meat, um, be it bovine or aviary or swine. Um, and then fruit, fish, juice, and others. So fruit's also very big. And that's over the period 2017-2019, which is pretty representative. And you can see here in terms of the last five years, how it's evolved, you can see meat is increasing. It's all reasonably flat, but meat is increasing. 
This slide is really a comparison of our data with the government data, just to show that the trends match. Government data has a slightly different um, methodology to it, but it's it's very much a match. And it, the, the good thing about the, this government data is they have a number out already for September, and you can see there's a, a pretty a good increase from August to September. So just to show us that the trend is continuing um, in terms of reefer exports and, and, and just exports in general, just the increase in, in exports. So at the moment, there doesn't seem to be any slowing down of, of this trend. And we're just uh, going to be reaching the end soon. <clears throat> but um, this is an interesting graph, and, and um, I will actually like to ask a question that hopefully uh, some some of the people either watching or the panelists themselves can also answer. I'm not sure what that what the answer would be to this, but we have a if you look at this graph, this just shows the imbalance in containers in general, not just reefer containers, but we have a big problem this year because of the pandemic, um, because imports have really taken a big hit. Uh, <clears throat> and of course, exports uh, remain strong. So the blue lines are imports and the red lines are exports. It's on a monthly basis. You can see that um, back in 2010 2011 we had more imports than exports so was, um, that kind of changed around 2015 and exports really started imports really took a took a hit with the exchange rate and the crisis and today the, uh, towards the end here you can see that uh, it's a man and down here you can see the imbalance so there is a big problem today, as I'm sure many shippers will know, although in reefer this is a, so it's been a problem always because of the imbalance, but even for dry uh, containers nowadays, it's very hard to find dry containers. The ships are all very full. And so we have many complaints from shippers about the, this uh, unavailability of, of dry containers. Now, um, the good thing is that imports are bouncing back. So you can see here that there is a kind of a V-shaped recovery where imports took a big hit in the first few months, seemed to have hit uh, 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 the, the bottom, a rock bottom in June, but have recovered since then and are, are bouncing back in a, in a V-shape. So, but my question really is, how does this impact the reefer? Uh, trades in the cold chain um, or does it or is it irrelevant because this is a completely separate thing when you talk about dry so maybe somebody can come back to that uh, later so we're finishing up here really in summary what in summary what we can say are that volumes have been increasing since 2010 they're continuing to increase in the last three years this has increased much more due to meat exports to China. And this year in particular, uh, with pork exports, 
it's just uh, exploded. Um, what we can see going forward is that the economy seems to be recovering. The Just yesterday or the day before, I believe, the IMF um, reduced the the deficit, the, the recession forecast from 9.5, this for Brazil, to about 5.8. So that's a big revision, um, which points to, to continued, um, the, the, the real remains devalued, which means exports seem to perhaps continue strongly. So, um, we see it continuing along the, the same lines. Um, and so those would be the, 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 the summarizing points. And then I'll finish it there. And I hope that uh, this has been a, a useful um, overview of what's been happening in, on the East Coast of South America as far as reefers is concerned during, during this pandemic year. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you very much, um, Andrew. A fascinating presentation and um, great stats and data as always on uh, such an important reefer trade. Um, the figures you're showing in terms of those nations' reliance on reefer exports for their economic um, success are quite, uh, quite staggering. Um, just a quick question before we move on, because we have Tom back on the line. How fantastic. Welcome. Um, you know, in case there are people are wondering why we're talking about the reefer, reefer data and trade data here when we're, we're an infrastructure focused uh, day. As I know originally you were due to speak yesterday, um, but this data is so important. I just wanted to ask you if, if you can address briefly. Um, I've. You, you have a fantastic newsletter, which I always read for sort of latest intel on, on the uh, East Coast South America market. And recently, I know you put out some news about the port of Pechem, for instance, you know, taking a, I think it was an MSC vessel, biggest ever, for fruit exports um, um, out of the region. Um, do you have any insight you could share with us in terms of the, the situation of, of ports in Brazil at the moment, you know, supporting the trades? Um, are they experiencing challenges because of COVID? You know, are they, um, you know, are there new ports emerging? Um, do, can you share any insight there? Yeah, um, what I've noticed about that is that Brazil has not had, uh, or Argentina maybe some more, but we have not had that many, that much impact on ports. Um, they've kept working throughout. Um, and which has been has been great. There have been some some outbreaks of COVID on some vessels um, at certain times, which led to some pretty concerning situations. I think that's been worldwide, from from what I could tell. But um, in Argentina specifically, we did have some, you know, some scary moments where. You know how will legislation cope with this? So there was talk at some time of uh, we're going to, um, you know, prevent and going to create a lot of legislation and bureaucracy before any vessel calls at ports. But I, I don't think it materialized in the end. So, um, you know, at this time with the fruit season coming in now, a number of services are coming in that are just seasonal. 
and Pesang is one of those uh, ports that benefits from that. So I think generally speaking, it, it could have been a lot worse and it, it hasn't really impacted in that sense. Uh, the Brazilian, as I'm sure you all know, but the Brazilian president uh, took an approach of being very pro-business, um, which has led to, um, you know, the economy remaining reasonably open. Um, and of course, there's been, you know, pros and cons in, in that. Um, but um, in terms of the uh, economy, we we didn't see that being affected very much in the on the port side. Thank you. And I know we are focusing mainly on sort of cold chain yeah, nodes and modes, uh, our expression today. Um, but the issue you raised about uh, container um, availability, um, that was a big talking point, as you can imagine, uh, yesterday. And maybe we'll get a chance because the assets are important too, you know, um, to come back to that in, in Q&A. Uh, thank you again, um, Andrew. You. I, see we, I see we have Tom um, hopefully back on back online and um, welcome back um, and uh, look forward to uh, continuing the presentation, Tom. Thank you. Yes, it seems I'm back. Uh, excuse me, something uh, happened with my internet connection, I think. Uh, let's move back from the east coast of Latin America to the east coast of uh, Africa to uh, where I left my uh, story. Um, we're looking at the picture of Ethiopia because we believe that Ethiopia has a very high potential of fruit and vegetable production for both the local market but also for uh, exports to the Middle East, to Europe and even to other uh, potential destinations. Um, but how can we Oh no, I'm so sorry. He is still there. Apologies to the audience here. We are having some technical issues. Rachel, you're muted. Oops. Sorry, Annalise. Yes, we do apologize. This is the first issue of this we've encountered uh, the whole the whole conference, but you always know there's going to be something at some point. Uh, so let's give it a couple of minutes again. Um, and um, actually, maybe while we're kind of waiting, I could go back to um, uh, to Andrew with the, with the issue on um, uh, container availability or reefer container availability that you were you were mentioning in your in your presentation. Uh, could you give us a couple more comments, uh, Andrew? You know, you said about shippers. You know, you've, we've seen a big growth in trade. I mean, the seven percent up um, uh, spurred by China um, with the pork, particularly pork demand. Um, how does that uh, correlate with sort of difficulties for shippers getting getting containers? So the the imbalance in reefers is clearly something that's always existed, right? Oh, I think Tom is back. Oh, he is, yes. Sh shall we return to that? Would that be okay? And I will turn back over to Tom. Tom, can you hear us? 
or we may be going back to the question with Andrew shortly. Well, <laughs> looks like it's just you and me in here at the moment, Andrew, and our audience, of course, uh, and Annalise. <laughs> well, so going back to the, the question you asked, the, the imbalance in reefer has always existed. Um, so I guess the market is adjusted to it. And obviously this year, you know, um, that's in, increased. But what has been, what's the new situation is really with regards to drive. So just the other day, for example, we got a call from a, from someone in, in Reuters saying, you know, we we wanted to understand about coffee exports because there are, you know, the shippers are so upset. There's a big harvest um, and there's a lot of coffee to be exported, but there's no containers. And when you do find a container, there's no ships. <laughs> yeah, thereby yeah. hangs the tail, and I think part of what Tom's talking about as well, the tail of you need the assets and you need the infrastructure to realise the value of the of the of the produce that's uh, that's been grown. Um, so I think we need to try another test with Tom. You're on mute at the moment. Can you hear us, Tom? Yes, I can. Can you hear me as well? Yes, we can. I switched now to my mobile uh, phone connection, so... Uh, <laughs> Wonderful, thank you so much for uh, keeping on trying. I don't know what's happening, but uh, I'll continue. Um, we call the situation in Ethiopia uh, the chicken and egg situation. You, you know, what was first, the chicken or the egg? Here, uh, no one will really invest in production of fruit and vegetables in Ethiopia because there's no good logistical corridor. At the same time, no one will invest in logistics in Ethiopia because there's no produce to ship. So that's the reason why we are called Flying Swans. We want to fly in with as many possible and other organizations as, po as, yeah, as possible uh, to, to break the situation, to develop both the logistical corridor and the production of fruit and vegetables for export uh, within the country. And therefore, uh, we need a lot of uh, partners, of course. Um, so, and what is our job in this? First step is to develop the master plan. And the master, I have a picture of the master plan here. This is uh, an artist impression of Ethiopia and also of Djibouti because it's really a, co in, a cooperation between the government of Ethiopia, Djibouti, and the Netherlands. Ethiopia is, as, as I said, the production location, the high potential for production of fruit and vegetables. Djibouti has the port, quite a modern and well-developed uh, port. Um, and the Netherlands has a lot of experience with trade and imports of fruit and vegetables uh, around the world. So the three uh, governments and also uh, not only the public sector, but also the private sector, three company, countries are involved to uh, develop this corridor. It consists of four elements. Number one is Coolport Others, like we have Coolport here in, uh, in Rotterdam. Uh, it is a cold store, um, a warehouse at the container terminal. There's a container terminal, also a dry port at, uh, at Mojo, close to Adesawa, the capital of Ethiopia, where we want to collect fruit and vegetables and stuff 
containers and load containers at the train. And the train itself is the second part of the corridor. Cool Rail Ethiopia, we call it, because we want to move, like I said in the beginning, weaver containers by train from Ethiopia to, to Djibouti. Of course, you need special wagons, which can provide power supply to the containers. So that is the second part of the corridor. The third part is a cross-dock facility at the port, at the container terminal uh, in Djibouti. Uh, because now this the train is already there, by the way, it's developed by the Chinese and uh, it's operational since uh, 2017 um, for dry containers and mainly, let's say, uh, like 90% for import because Ethiopia is an importing country. Um, what we want to avoid is that we first have to import empty containers uh, before we can export fruit and vegetables. So we want to cross dock dry bulk or dry goods, stuff them into river containers at the port of Djibouti uh, to avoid empty lags on this uh, corridor. And number four is the agric agricultural production, the production of fruit and vegetables, but also flowers and maybe even other uh, like meat uh, in Ethiopia for the export. Um, because we believe the potential and we, we were not going to plant our own trees or, or harvest uh, avocados or other fruits, but we want to support all investors, local investors, international investors and local farmers to uh, increase the production and also the, uh, yeah, to provide everything that's necessary to export fruit and vegetables from Ethiopia. So this is the master plan. Um, and this year we have said we yeah, made the first very important step in the development of it. Uh, we're in the preparation of the um, design, technical design, and also the business case, etc., of Coolport others. Uh, and the rest is not uh, available yet, but it's work in progress. But what is happening has happened this year, about two months ago, the very first a river container in Ethiopia was loaded at the train at the container terminal in Ethiopia. This was on the 22nd of August of this year. Uh, one container loaded with avocados from Ethiopia, uh, which is moved by train to the port of Djibouti and ultimately to a customer in, uh, in Europe. And actually, two weeks later, also a second container has been moved in this way. Um, it was a special moment. You see some people uh, around it. Um, not too many because of the COVID restrictions. But in this uh, crowd is the Ethiopian Minister of Transport, is the Ethiopian State Minister of Horticulture, and also the Dutch Ambassador in Ethiopia, uh, which shows that they are very involved also on high level and it was a very special moment uh, in the development of this uh, logistics corridor because it's a this corridor is important for ethiopia if they can export fruit and vegetables which has quite high value it can bring uh, foreign currency to the country it can create jobs for its people and it can attract customers and, and investors and, and and companies to the country so um, this, this, this logistical corridor can unlock the fruit and vegetable potential of the country, which can have a great potential in the, um, in the, on the country itself. Um, 
the, the organization, well, when we prepared this shipment uh, like a half year ago, everybody who was involved says, uh, should we do this? Because there's already a lot of challenges in Ethiopia, also logistical challenges. You bring an extra risk. Uh, so people were very hesitant. Um, I tried to convince them because we believe that the train is faster, is more reliable, it's even cheaper, and it's of course better for the environment to bring the containers by train from inland Ethiopia, 750 kilometers away to the port of Djibouti, even through some hills and, uh, and, and uh, yeah, mountainous area. Now, when we look back, um, everybody is convinced that still the logistics in Ethiopia has challenges, but nobody would doubt using the train. This was like the easiest part of the whole corridor, loading the container of the train, the train moves almost, well, not almost, it moves every day, even twice a day from Ethiopia to Djibouti. Uh, it's fast, it's reliable. In Djibouti, they know how to handle uh, containers at the ports. So it was actually the easiest and the best part of the, of the whole shipment. Um, by the way, it's good to, re to explain. Um, this week, we, we talk a lot about COVID and, and the impact on it on the corridors. Uh, this whole shipment was prepared uh, from the place where I'm, I'm now, from the upper room of my home. <laughs> and everybody who was involved, and there are a lot of people involved from many different countries, Belgium, France, Kenya, Ethiopia, Djibouti, all of them worked from home or from their office, but no one could travel to Ethiopia. So that, that's the only reason why this could be such a success. Many organizations, governmental, non-governmental, in and also private in Ethiopia were involved, also in Djibouti. Uh, international uh, parties like Food Care Plus from Belgium, uh, as the logistic food, uh, logistic service provider, they have um, organized it from their side, um, the shipment and also the sea freight, CMA, the shipping line was involved in so many others. Uh, and because so many people were involved and as a team we worked on it, this was uh, possible. Of course, it has some uh, challenges, and that is, uh, and, and we still have some have some challenges also for the future. This is the moment when the container arrived at the port of uh, of uh, Djibouti, um, and we and and like also Andrew just mentioned, positioning of empty containers is one of the um, largest and biggest challenges. Because when you need them, they're not available, and when you don't need them, they might uh, bring them. Um, also this week, and also in the previous presentation, Andrew said something about not matching uh, supply and demand of river containers, which is always a challenge, but especially in the COVID um, times, maybe even more. Well, in Ethiopia, there, there is no river container uh, at this moment, and if you want to export something, you need to bring your own river container from somewhere. And these are these were avocados which need an active controlled atmosphere. So also um, very, yeah, more special or high techniques in the um, in the reef container. Other challenges are there are no not no people with knowledge and experience of reef containers or gensec techniques, uh, which all should be brought from outside. Um, they're not very efficient uh, sea freight routes yet and also uh, only small feeders are calling at uh, Djibouti yet 
Customs procedures are sometimes challenging, especially when you want to use the container two ways. So import of certain cargo and export of other cargo of another owner. And uh, yeah, there might be, uh, of course, a lot more smaller challenges. Um, but that's also the reason why we are involved and otherwise uh, when it's already running well, it's not really a challenge anymore. But I think it's amazing in this, in the world where so many things are uh, very developed and we are more talking about making things more efficient and more effective this is really the start from scratch scratch and uh, literally from scratch there is really nothing and um, that brings challenges and that makes it also very interesting we think to uh, to develop this and that's also our role really early stage development someone else can construct the the cold store someone else can run the cold store someone else can run the train um etc someone else can uh, can produce fruits and vegetables from ethiopia and export them but together uh, we can unlock the potential which we see in ethiopia and uh, develop this logistical corridor that's my uh, introduction Thank you so much, Tom. So glad we could um, get you back online for absolutely fascinating presentation. Um, an act of will or, or of imagination um, and then taking all the steps to put something real uh, in place. Um, so, so you mentioned, uh, I'm going to maybe make a few points, ask you a couple of questions whilst we still got you just in case. Um, so you what you're saying you're putting in place like a complete integrated cold logistics um, a corridor and cluster uh, concept um, is that something um, you see as um, a model uh, for other uh, developing um, nations going forwards to um, approach the cold chain in a in a holistic integrated way um, rather than individual sort of nodes um, uh, one of the reasons, like I said, to break this chicken and egg situation, uh, we see many more countries also in Africa with potential for fruit and vegetable production and also for export like Angola where we have been or Tanzania or, or some areas in Kenya. We work also in the uh, Tsanin area in the north of uh, in Limpopo, north of South Africa. Um, so yes, um, it's 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 of course, you can load a truck and you can drive all the way to the port and, and from there on it goes. Uh, but it needs especially to um, to connect smallholder farmers and, and local farmers to export markets. You need to have some collection points uh, and, and, and cold stores, which are not very much present in these areas. Um, especially in the longer distance, we really prefer to use the train to bring um, the goods and the preferably um, containers to the port. So yes, this is what we see as a, as a concept. Um, we tried now in Ethiopia, we tried in South Africa, uh, but we like to develop it also in, in other countries in Africa, but all around the world um, as an like you say, as an integrated. Uh, way because we we know many examples of cold stores also in ethiopia i can i can show you a few they are there for like uh, 10 years now and never used 
uh, they're useless. Of course, there was a vision and, and there, there is some potential for production, but it's not linked with the next um, uh, yeah, part of the chain. Uh, so you need to do it in an integrated way. You need to connect the government, you need to connect companies and also of, uh, of different areas and uh, specializations. Yes, uh, my um, uh, former colleague, friend who's here, Alex von Stempel, was uh, famously often often uh, remarked that there's no such thing as a cold chain uh, <clears throat> because of the lack of the connective tissue between the different individual elements in the chain. So. Um, to see this type of development, which reflects on uh, also exactly what we've been talking about generally the last few uh, days of the need to take a, a supply chain look uh, at the cold chain with all with all the moving pieces and the and the static pieces, um, uh, absolutely uh, uh, fascinating. Um, so um, we have some more questions, Tom, and we'd like to come back to questions, but we're going to go on to our third speaker now. And fingers crossed you can stay on the line so we can have a, uh, a conversation between us and with the audience uh, at, the, at the end of the session. Thank you very much. So, um, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for your patience. Two great presentations. Uh, we're having to finish up this session, not a presentation, but more of a discussion. Uh, so I'd like to welcome and introduce um, from France, uh, Pascal Olivier, he's president of uh, Maritime Street. Um, I've been fortunate enough to work with him over many years now. Uh, to give you a bit of context, uh, Pascal's speciality is in the uh, digital um, uh, side of uh, port infrastructure, uh, working for many years on uh, port community systems and now in other aspects of uh, digitalization um, to uh, enable greater uh, port efficiency and particularly port community efficiency. Um, I've been fortunate enough to work with Pascal recently in his role working with the International Association of Ports and Harbours, IAPH, major body representing port authorities around the world. Um, IAPH has developed a uh, COVID-19 global port barometer, um, which Pascal has been on the task force. Um, and we've also worked together on a white paper on um, cybersecurity within the port community. And uh, of course, cybersecurity is an issue that came up yesterday. Um, in our debate on digitalization uh, in general. Um, so Pascal has um, worked extensively in Latin America um, and in Africa as well, Tom, but what we chose to look at today and we're gonna have a brief conversation about is, um, yeah, the Latin America port market with a particular focus on a Peruvian case study, looking at what's happening with digitalization of and support of processes um, to help uh, uh, perishable shippers and the cold chain. So um, Pascal, I hope I did you justice with that introduction and um, could you speak a bit to um, the Latin America and Peruvian cold chain market and why the digitalization efforts you're working on are, are important? 
Well, thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, good afternoon and good morning, uh, everybody around the world. Uh, thank you for the invitation, Rachel. It's a pleasure always uh, to be um, a part of your events in that cool logistic global this year. I think before we talk about Peru, it's interesting to, uh, I, I would piggyback on what you said on IPH, um, because the, the cold business at ports has been as much as affected as the over traffics. Um, what we did back at IPH um, six months ago, uh, Patrick Verovan, who is the Director General of IPH, created the a task force um, uh, for um, addressing the COVID-19 at ports. And that COVID-19 uh, task force was chaired by Tessa Major. She's the Director of International Affairs of Port de Asu uh, in, in Rio States in Brazil. And um, it, it's interesting enough to what's happened, you know. Uh, I will not talk about crew changes, uh, but you know, from a safety and efficiency perspective, we primarily been at all ports around the world and including in Latin America, uh, to two primarily issues. Um, the first one is most of the business processes uh, in, in, I would say in, in the, what we call, what we call the South market, you know, um, in emerging and developing countries, still is lots of paper-based transaction. Um, so, you know, within COVID-19, you know, to have individuals bringing paper to do a transaction for a custom broker, for customs and whatever agencies, it was just no way, right? Um, second is related to the paper-based transaction, we figured out that the, you know, the issue of COVID-19 made that we wanted to avoid human interaction. So paper-based transaction, human interaction, informal economy, like we mentioned earlier today, we suddenly were stuck in a situation and numbers of governments in Latin America and around the globe, but in Latin America, asked to take actions to avoid paper-based transaction, uh, even if it was not possible to, to do so, but you know they have to do and, 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 and also to avoid human interaction between people. So some governments issue decrees uh, to push for the digitalization, or to put um, uh, temporary decrease where people have to use emails to send files rather than to bring paper base, if, even if it was not part of the official regulatory process. And, and therefore, within the, the cold chain, it has a deeper impact because uh, if you look at South America, most of the cold chain is coming from on the uh, West Coast, from the uh, Indian part. Um, of, of the countries. Uh, so, I mean, in the mountains and in the north where it's cool um, areas where the temperature is good, where people was not understanding what COVID-19 was, you know, and the measure that they have to follow um, regarding their states. And, and so, we, what's happened at IEPH, because of all that, on a global scale, what we did is we, we went for a call to actions and we will talk later on on this matter uh, on accelerating digitalization. You know, so uh, that, that's that's reality. So to go back to to, to Latin America, um, it is clear that Latin America for the last I would say five years has been going to a phase of digitalization. I'm not talking about accelerating digitalization yet, but going to a phase of of, of digitalization and and primarily. On the on the Pacific coast, uh, I think one of the first country to move to digitalization has been Chile, 
you know, especially in Port of, of, of Valparaiso, early last decade in the first uh, first half of the last decade, and 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 more pro progress are coming onto the market primarily through the involvement of uh, what we call international financial institution, uh, and in primarily in Latin America and on on Pacific coast, thanks to the Inter-American Development Bank to have put a number of program to bring capacity to the government and to have the vision of digitalization. And, and the IDB uh, really put a program for numbers of projects around port community systems for collaboration between public and private stakeholders on trade logistics. And in the context of Peru, um, um, it, it has been part of a project called the um, Ventanilla Unica de Comercio Exterior, it's uh, the foreign trade single window, how we call it in English, uh, is to bring all government agency and trade together for foreign trade permits and, and licenses. And, and they brought back um, this project for the port community systems really started um, uh, early this year uh, from a design to implementation phase over a few years period. Um, but the importance of moving digital in the context of our cool business uh, is paramount. Uh, when you look at the, the agriculture export um, in Peru, uh, last year it was a $7.5 billion economy. Next year is gonna be, even with COVID-19, expected to be $10 billion economy. It has been fast growing, like it has been fast growing in Colombia, it has been uh, fast growing in Chile. So it, it, it's a big business. Even if it could be meat, it could be vegetables, it could be fruits, and it could be seafood, uh, aquaculture, but the business is growing. And, and the more it's growing, you know, the more bottlenecks you get, you know, of course. And, and when you look at a, a recent World Bank study was looking at, at really the logistic chain, um, as far as the, the cold chain is concerned, we uh, figure out that 43% of delays in the cold chain going from uh, the way that product are manufactured going to the port of Callao was related to three elements. 43% of delays were related. The first one, 22% was the congestion, the congestion of the port. Uh, arriving at the port, arriving at the warehouse, arriving at a cold warehouse, at a temporary storage warehouse, arriving at the terminal. Second, 11% was related to control inspections in inspection from different governmental agencies. And finally, 10% was related to controls and coordinations. So it was not only inspection, but also the collaboration between the stakeholders, public and private, to make it happen. And we all know that, you know, managing the temperature, you know, of those refers is, is really key. So if you are going to too many inspections, your, I mean, your stuff is almost lost, you know, so you have to send it back to the producer because the importer will not accept it because it has been, you know, not in quality that we're expecting. So what I'm seeing here is that Lots of delays related to the multi-stakeholder collaboration uh, into an, an economy where data collaboration is coming key for organization of the supply chain at export, you know, in the case of export. And because of the growing business, 
The Port Community System project with uh, Government of Peru has right now is a very interesting project to answer to the problems of the coal chain uh, in Peru. Uh, so that's, you know, as the first, you know, thing that uh, it's digitalization become important to support, of course, beyond uh, at the time of COVID-19, but a critical supply chain, one of the most critical supply chain in terms of export and, and development of export in this country and at large in Latin America. Thank you, Pascal. That's uh, that's that's uh, fascinating. So, could you tell us a bit more in terms of the Peruvian project? I mean, uh, what kind of timescale are we talking about? Uh, and for those who don't really know Port Community Systems, you know, what does it? What does that actually mean? What will it involve putting in place? Yeah, I think it, it, it's 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 very interesting to to look at. If, if you look at Port Community Systems. It's digital platform to manage your trade logistics, uh, you know, to optimize, to manage, and to coordinate, to automate all the trade logistic processes between the private stakeholders and the governmental agency. So it is a business to government, it's government to business, it's a business to business processes and government to government processes uh, made on data on a trusted platforms uh, that you know, everybody can access and share information on the automation of the business processes. So you remove paper, you remove human interaction, all the import and export transit, transit and business processes are, uh, you know, through that platform managers. And uh, the scope of a port community system generally could be at the port community level, for example, Port of Callao, you know, in, in Peru, but it could be Coming beyond the city, it could be covered from a port logistics area where you have, you know, warehouses and dry ports. And I like uh, the project of Tom on, on cool ports, uh, indeed, um, to separate from a security perspective, you know, those kind of transactions. And, and, but it could be also nationwide. So it could be you can manage one port, you can manage one seaport. But you can manage, for example, in the future, uh, in, in Peru, Matarane, Ilo in the south, Paida in the north, in the, Ilo in the south, Paida in the north. So it can, yeah, it, it could be nationwide, you know. Uh, port community systems have been implanting uh, in 49 countries as we speak around the world, which is not too much when we know that Europe is home of the PCS. You got almost a PCS. In, the, in all countries in the North French, uh, in the South, in, in Spain and in Italy, now moving to Greece, uh, it's going also to Bulgaria, but most of the North ports and all the range North, all the North of Europe has been having PCS, uh, Northeast Asia, but now Middle East, Southeast Asia is starting. And in the Americas region, the early adopters has been Jamaica, Tom Rep, uh, the US, Port of LA has moved to three years ago to Port Community Systems. Jean uh, Seroka, the executive director of Port LA, recently called for a nationwide PCS in the US with the FMC. Uh, and in South America, I mean, uh, Valparaiso in Chile has been the first one to move. Uh, now, the second big mover, largest PCS project right now is the, um, uh, the uh, Port of Callao, um, uh, really. And uh, the Port Community Systems environment is. Uh, 
also with an umbrella of International Port Community System Association, SPCSA, uh, which is chaired right now by Ansrook, uh, with former uh, Port of Rotterdam and, and, and Port Base, um, um, Port Base in PCS operator um, in, um, in, 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 in the Netherlands uh, at the Port of Rotterdam. So um, that, um, so numbers of shipping lines are using PCS all over around the world. And therefore, when you get to refer, uh, of course, what is interesting is the, not only you got the uh, data related to the flow of goods uh, and the physical flow of goods, but also like it was discussed earlier uh, this week uh, on the smart container. Uh, it, is, it is clear that in the context of Peru, in the future, having not only the port community system, which is going to manage a trade logistic flow, but coupled with IOTs, and not only the IOTs that MSC or APMT or MERCs uh, or CMA can have, but uh, on a general scale. So within the country, uh, on the corridor uh, from the Andeans in the mountains or in the south or in the north, you can track and trace physically, you know, through IOT, not only your container, but the temperature of the container, uh, uh, the door opening uh, for security, uh, for security perspective. Um, where, which is a sensitive issue, of course, um, in, in, in South America and in, in the Pacific. Uh, so you can see that uh, what we call the Troika, the Troika is about between the PCS, we can have real-time trade logistics information that, for example, governmental agencies or exporters don't have today, you know. Um, uh, second, you got the IoT, so you got the physical follow-up of the goods and the, and the cargo. Uh, and you put on top of that artificial intelligence, uh, you know, because most it was discussed in terms of tech in the IoT AI is becoming very important. So the troika between AI, PCS and IoT really makes sense on a critical supply chain for, for that country of Peru. In terms to answer um, to your question, Rachel, in terms of time frame, um, government of Peru uh, through the Minister of Foreign Trade and National Port Authority uh, uh, launch the project uh, this year. Uh, the government is in the master plan design um, of, of the PCS project uh, and next year they're going to start the implementation phase which is going to be going uh, on the roadmap perspective on, on a, on a three-year plan uh, uh, that they're going to be rolling out. So that's it's where where Peru is is on there. Other countries, uh, other countries are looking to port community system uh, in Latin America. Uh, Colombia is, is looking. Uh, uh, Cartagena port recently, I mean in 2020, uh, as a growth, triples their business in reefers, uh, which is really amazing, uh, especially for consolidation and, and new lines coming to Cartagena. But Panama is going to port community systems. Uh, as well as numbers of SDI, the islands in the Caribbean as well. And uh, Argentina is working on his, also his design right now of his port community systems uh, for the port of Buenos Aires. Uh, there are some projects also in Santos uh, with other ports uh, also uh, on, for going for port community systems. So there is a, a large wave right now of, of implementing uh, collaboration. Uh, between a uh, multi-stakeholder environment from public and private for transparency and visibility of the supply chain, which is like we you were discussing about Africa. It's what the last decades, so after Europe, 
a big development in Africa about port community system for transparency, visibility um, of the supply chain in a uh, public and private cooperation, which is, which is a new thing and it's, it's coming also in Latin America. Well, it's really interesting. Thank you, Pascal, to see the, um, <clears throat> you know, and what you're uh, informing us on, the analogy between um, uh, integrating physical infrastructure and taking that holistic approach as Tom's just been talking to us about uh, and uh, other speakers in previous sessions and the fact that the digital side of things is, is exactly the same requiring uh, multi-stakeholder collaboration. Um, I want to ask you a few questions about that in a moment but first um, we do have, as I said, you know, people here from all around the world, including quite a lot of uh, shippers uh, and, and forwarders um, whose uh, job is to get their produce out safely to market and, and sold to generate um, income. So what's your uh, advice, Pascal? You know, what are the benefits for a shipper? Uh, and how are they engaged in uh, the port community systems or digitalization efforts? Um, I, I think that the, uh, when you deploy a port community systems, it's beyond Peru. I mean, it's uh, on, on, on Latin America and around the world, anybody. Um, when you move to a, a digital project like this, it is not about technology. And I know yesterday on IoT, you discussed about smart containers and tech. Uh, it's not like, you know, it's not about tech. It's only about change management. And change management means that we live in a world where you've got the public sector working as silos between governmental agencies, and you've got the private sector working as silos. And sometimes you have a port community organization, right? Sometimes not. Sometimes it's, it's, it's very active, sometimes it's not active. But when you are importers and exporters and, and, and shippers there, you need to be engaged, you know. So when you go to port community system, the most important thing is to go for, to engage the community, to engage all the stakeholders, including the exporters. Uh, and in the context of, of the cool business, I would say it's a specific animal, you know. It, it's very different from any type of cargo because uh, uh, it is is related to farmers uh, generally, which are small farmers, where you consolidate those farmers trade at a specific uh, consolidation area, uh, warehouse where it's an it's another business. In Venezuela, you, you have the transportation, and we know that the roads, are, you know, in Latin America, are not great. You know, in, in numbers of countries, so you have uh, to manage your trucks. In Venezuela, you have. You know, you arrive at the port, and what do you do at the port? You know, when people are not coordinate and, and so forth. So, the the shippers and the exporters should have a voice. Should have a voice as anybody in the port community. A voice like a shipping line, like a freight forwarder, uh, like a terminal operator, like a customs, like agriculture, healthcare, health. And in, in, in we need to engage trade. And engage trade is meaning engaging also the importers and the exporters. And in context of cool logistics, um, on the exporters and shippers, they need to be engaged. We need to talk to them. We need to understand the bottlenecks in their business processes, because the key thing is when you implement a procurement of the systems, 
First of all, the first thing you do, you look at as is processes, you know, how it is today, how is it working? And you can identify what is paper-based transaction, uh, what is, where is human interaction, where is informal environment or ecosystems, um, and what's wrong, you know, how we cannot, and a big question after you go on a to be, and a to be, you said, okay, how to optimize? And, and really how to help EPCS to optimize the business. So it's good to listen to the shipper say, okay, what are my bottlenecks? You know, what I want to do better. And we sit around a table where we can engage, you know, the shippers to have a voice as any other voice on the same level. You know, this is, this is really the first thing that we, we'd like to do and in general scale, engage uh, the community. And just to give you an example, um, a few years back, I mean, 15 years ago, uh, Mauritius in the Indian Ocean, going back to Tom and Eastern Africa and Indian Ocean, we, uh, uh, there was a PCS project there, uh, we were involved, and, and the Port Community System platform was requested, not from the shipping line, so the traditional Port Community, but the exporters uh, on, on those days in 2005, Mauritius were very known for textile business. You know, uh, China just be part of, of the WTO, so they were developing their business, but Mauritius was very important. And why they decided to develop PCS in, in, in Mauritius is because the exporters wanted, you know, to be on the platform for their own business because they need to have efficiency. They need to move away from informal economy. and. And so that, that's why, you know, so I think in, I do believe that in Latin America, but it would be valid also for Africa, for example, which is developing that cool business a lot. But in, in South America, I think the, the, the cool logistics community uh, need to show up and to have a voice, you know, as equivalent to the, uh, man, you know, manufacturers association or the cars importers association or whatsoever. You know, I think it's, it's time, you know, when we said we have a call to urgent, urgent call for digitalization that we, we bring around the table the right stakeholders who need to go for efficiency and safety, you know, as we speak in a COVID-19 era. Um, thank you uh, very much, Pascal. I'm just keeping an eye on the clock here so we've got time for questions because I've seen quite a few coming in, um, they're really good ones as well. Um, but Pascal, um, um, I wanted to ask you, you know, in the context of um, yeah, cold chain and particularly, as you say, exporters and importers, you've done quite a lot of PCS deployments over uh, many years now. Um, uh, typically, uh, and I was thinking as you were speaking of the um, report a few years ago by Maersk prior to the launch of TradeLens when they mapped the journey of, and it was a reefer container shipment, I think from Africa into Europe and they mapped the process steps and they said there was like 90 process steps and the amount of cost that added to the shipment and time. So as context, um, as you've gone around deploying, do you have any data you can share on how much, um, you know, what, what type of improvements uh, you get post-PCS versus pre-PCS in terms of logistics efficiency and cost? Yeah, I think I think one of the most relevant business cases that we have in the industry uh, is the one from Rotterdam. Uh, Twenty years ago, there was no PCS in Rotterdam. Okay, 
whereas you get a PCS in Hamburg, in La Havre, in Marseille, in Felixto, and uh, they were part of the second generation of PCS. Port of Rotterdam went uh, a couple of years back to a formal study about the annual value created by the implementation in, in PCS of emails that we don't use anymore, phone calls that they do not use anymore, people not moving anymore to get information and to see where is the cargo, what is the status of cargo, trucks coming for nothing to the port and waiting for hours, you know. Annual value created by the PCS in Rotterdam, port-based PCS, is estimated by the Port of Rotterdam Authority by $230 million euros on a yearly basis. So, uh, so you put that in the context of 14 million TUs and you can, can have a formula when you go to any ports, you know, how much you, know, you can save, you know. Uh, so that's really a good example because Port of Rotterdam is the first port authority uh, port in Europe. And so that's interesting to look, to look at that, you know, as fact and figures. But you get that in all, all ports who have implemented PCS, not only from a financial perspective, but from a KPI's perspective, uh, you can see that, for example, you go to France, uh, custom release uh, between one and two minutes because everything is automated versus days and weeks sometimes in some countries. Uh, that's a good, another good example, you know, it's, when your cargo is released, I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's important for everybody. So yeah, that's, that's tangible data, tangible dollar figures for, uh, for ports, but you know, if you go back to Peru in, in that context, uh, uh, in the cold chain, you got some, uh, you got some products. Uh, the cost of logistics is 50% of the FOB price, you know, so it's, it's, it, it's huge, you know, so anything you can reduce in the supply chain in terms of congestion, uh, inspections, coordination, you can save 50% of the cost of logistics, indeed. Through digitization? Yeah. Wonderful, thank you. Well, we could certainly talk much longer, Pascal, but um, I want to make some of the questions for the panel. Thank you very much for the conversation. And I'm hoping we're going to be joined just before the end of the session, um, looking for an update for, uh, by Steve Cameron um, to tell us a bit about the uh, uh, virtual drinks club session he's hosting this evening, which we were just talking about before the session started, that we all miss the, the networking. So we're trying to bring you a, a virtual opportunity for uh, all that. Um, so uh, thank you um, to all the speakers so far. I'm going to start, um, I see so many analogies between uh, Pascal, your conversation about the digital collaboration and uh, Tom uh, of the physical collaboration and supply chain thinking. It's, uh, it's very exciting. So I'm just going to peer at my phone now because my reading glasses are, and uh, throw out some of the questions for you. So uh, we have uh, one here from uh, John Trenchard. Thank you, John. And I am pretty sure um, this may be directed at, uh, at Andrew in, the, in this case, um, but uh, feel free to jump in the rest of the panel because it 
Tom talked about it as well. So John's um, thesis is asking, uh, given the structural imbalance issues for containers, is there a demand for reverse logistics flows as part of uh, cold supply chain considerations? So feel free to jump in. I think I would um, like uh, Tom or Pascal to answer that one. It's quite well, a big one, isn't it? Yeah, what we do try to do in Ethiopia, although it's, it's we're just in the first steps, of course, is um, either find um, import flows of, of by river containers, uh, so cooled uh, products. However, to match it is very difficult because uh, there should be the same type of container, should be the same season or, or time of the year. Uh, so there are many challenges. The second thing we do, like I said, is to import, uh, like there are a lot of garment factories, Chinese garment factories in Ethiopia, uh, and they import a lot from China. We try to convince, convince them to load already their materials in China in river containers. Um, I'm not sure if we will be successful in that, but that's one of the ideas we have. And the third one is what I discussed, the cross-dock facility in the port of Djibouti. I don't know if that is uh, happening in many places in the world, but that is really meant to stuff river containers with dry goods uh, in order to, to send off the dry containers back to the or, or to the next destination and to avoid these empty legs within the country and not on the international part. And John, if I may add, you know, um, this is a big, big topic you've raised and we've had a lot of conversations at uh, Cool Logistics about it uh, with the uh, uh, shipping lines and uh, the logistics community. Um, and yes, there are, you know, uh, a number of schemes in place to use non-operating reefers um, to, to avoid an empty, an empty position. Um, but there's other people you could might also want to talk to, and maybe we can uh, follow up offline um, on that. Um, but uh, thank you very much, Tom. Um, so, um, Johan, Johannes Nanninger from Guangzhou Port. Um, thank you, Johannes, for taking part again with the question. Um, so I think this one, uh, Andrew, is one you may want to take. We, we heard yesterday that the Chinese pork effect could last for another 12 months. Would speakers think that when this effect goes away, everything will be back to before, or are there other forces that also increase cold chain requirements and reefer flows? That's a question I've been asking myself, to be honest. <laughs> what will happen, you know, once um, once China is back uh, to you know consuming their own uh, pork? I think um, one of the things that we've noticed over the years um, following, uh, you know, Brazilian and uh, well, especially Brazilian exports of meat is that it's, uh, it becomes pretty political. So, you know, we used to have a lot of exports to Russia and then for some reason they get, um, they get uh, cancelled. You know, there is a ban uh, because of a particular um, inspection on Brazilian uh, um, exporters, meat packers, uh, certain meat packers get, get clo not closed down, but they have 
um, you know, they, they, they are banned from exporting. And we then see Russia come back after some time and then China gets canceled and it's chicken and it's beef. And it's um, for, for, for the people who are not involved, it, it, it really seems quite, it's often political. And I think um, um, what happens in this time might be that uh, uh, other countries are taking notice of uh, Brazil's capacity to export pork. And so, you know, it may not be China uh, in a couple of years time, but maybe another country may come in and require that. But it's, uh, it's really obviously going to depend on what happens within China in terms of their own demand. And, and um, uh, that's pretty difficult to predict, uh, at least for me right now, I don't, I wouldn't be able to comment any further on that. Thank you, Andrew. I know we've also talked about in the past, you know, tariff wars and, and non-tariff barriers, as you say, in terms of uh, approvals uh, from various governments. So um, that's, this is a definitely an issue that will continue for some time. Um, I have another question in here from um, Martin Cusi uh, from PSA Halifax, um, major global terminal operator, of course. And um, so his question uh, for panel in, uh, what in your opinion can ports do to add value to the cold chain for customers? I.e., what are some of the things ports are lagging behind on in this respect in the cold chain? Reefer monitoring on terminals, reefer techs uh, at the terminal or other uh, value added uh, services. Um, Tom, can I kind of throw that one at you with a twist? Because uh, listening to Pascal, I was wondering, you know, how much, um, yeah, uh, uh, a sort of uh, a tech side of things was also part of the, uh, of the project in Ethiopia in terms of, uh, yeah, supporting the information flows. Exactly. Um, so for us, as we work in Ethiopia, the, the knowledge and also the services of the port of Djibouti is of the utmost importance um, because we're so uh, dependent on, on them. And also we cannot start this cold chain in Ethiopia without them and also not without their expertise. So, uh, so with the technical expertise, they can do, for example, pre-trip inspection of the container because no one in Ethiopia is able to do that. Uh, even Djibouti is still a challenge. Uh, then uh, I said we use the train and there's not still no power supply for the river containers yet because it's useless for uh, two containers a year. So we used clip-on gensets. Uh, they should be available in Djibouti in, at, at the port. They should be maintained. They should be installed. They should be checked, uh, etc. Next one is uh, high priority because in every port there's sometimes congestion, uh, sometimes for weeks or months, sometimes just for hours or days. Uh, but but cool chain needs to get the highest priority and 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 should, should never be left uh, somewhere without power. So uh, in in this regard, the ports can really take the lead in technical expertise and experience and and, and to develop the culture. Uh, to to take as a leader the, the developments in the hinterland could be in the same country or even further away, like in the case of Ethiopia. 
Yeah, I think Rachel, I'd like to, to piggyback on that. I think we, um, we have a trend going on in, in, in our um, IAPH environment where uh, we said digital first, physical second. Why do we say this? Because many times we invest on our on infrastructure, on physical infrastructure without thinking digital. And sometimes you invest in things which are useless because you don't have the digital platform. So now we're seeing any project we have, like in the, if you work with World Bank and IBB and all that, they ask you about your project. Do you have a sustainable development goal strategy? Yes or no? No, you move away. Digital, the same story. If you have an infrastructure project, if you don't have the first digital strategy for it, it's useless. So I think that in the context of the question, Martin from Halifax is, what is the digital infrastructure we need to put in place to serve the cool business, right? Uh, and therefore we can organize from a master planning perspective, from a digital perspective and a physical perspective, how to serve the reefer business. And yes, the Port Authority of Halifax, for example, you have a great uh, champion there uh, at the port, you know, can really have a, a strong voice championing uh, the reef of business, you know. So digital strategy, physical strategy, organizational strategy, collaboration strategy, breaking the ice between the silos, you know, at the government, at trade, to make it as a priority. Because I think not all Port Authority thinks that reefers is a critical business. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I think that's a really, thank you for bringing that point up, Pascal. Um, again, here at Cool Logistics, you know, running for years, it, it, it took us a while to sort of get port um, and terminal engagement um, uh, when we first started out 12 years ago, uh, with the exception of the obvious, you know, very yeah. large uh, centres handling reefers. Um, I do a lot of other work in the terminal sector and I'd go to ask, you know, container terminals about the reefer business and, you know, or ports and it, they weren't really keyed into it um, as a specific business segment, um, uh, more as a uh, more as a trouble than anything else, um, mm. a cost and a pain because you have to plug the reefers in and it costs energy and electricity and so forth. Um, but that really seems to have started to uh, to, and maybe be accelerated by the pandemic, when which has so clearly demonstrated the importance of global cold chains, both for food supply um, and for vaccines. Um, but uh, Martin, also back, I hope you come into this afternoon session because one of the other big issues is sustainability. And we're going to be talking about some technology in the session uh, uh, after our lunch break, um, which is all about um, uh, monitoring um, reefers in the terminal, um, but very specifically also about reducing energy, um, energy costs of, of, of uh, uh, reefers in terminals, which can be up to 40% of a terminal's uh, energy bill uh, for, for the larger reefer ports. So, so do come and join us. Um, so um, thank you very much, gentlemen, for another fascinating session. Um, my big takeaway is that it's all about um, uh, thinking big again, about integration of different components and about enabling a collaboration uh, between um, multiple parties 
to get things done. Um, so um, that's uh, that's what I'll take away from it. And I'll be really interested to get feedback from delegates on uh, uh, what your takeaways were. But let me turn over now, um, with thanks to all, uh, to my colleague Annalise, and she, unfortunately, Steve Cameron can't join us for this session, but uh, Annalise is uh, deputising to um, give you a little taste, if you like, of what is to come this evening. Thank you very much, Rachel, and thank you, gentlemen, for that panel. Um, I've come to talk to you about Martini. Um, in as we heard this morning, we're um, we're working from home, we're eating from home, and now we're all drinking at home as well. Or maybe that's just me. But anyway, we would like to formally invite you all, and I am here speaking on behalf of Steve Cameron. This is not really my invite, but on behalf of Steve Cameron, who's working very hard on something else. Uh, he would like to invite the attendees of Cool Logistics to join the London Maritime Mystery Martini Club, which I probably couldn't say after I'd had a martini. Um, we are um, formally all invited. You can join through the um, in the same way that you've joined all the sessions today. It's going to be at five o'clock tonight. And this is a group of professionals who have been meeting for a good few years about five times a year, normally around a big event. Some of you may have been invited previously. I know Rachel's been invited. I've never made the list, so I feel very honoured to be on the invite for the first time. Um, there will be members from across the industry, but it is a chance to have a chat informally and most importantly, to learn how to make a martini. So if you would like to join us at five o'clock, you can bring whatever drink you like. But if you would like to learn how to make a martini, these are the official ingredients. You can screenshot this. We will post it somewhere as well. I'm sure um, my colleagues will find a way to push it out to you all. So grab the ingredients um, and sit back on your computer. We will be hosted through this platform, as I say, but it will then take you to a Zoom channel. So we can have lots of you on camera, we can have some fun, and we can end the conference with some informal chat. And as I say, learning how to make a martini. So I look forward to seeing you there, five o'clock tonight. I will briefly hand back to Rachel, who may have something final to say. Um, but if not, we'll see you for the afternoon sessions, but also five o'clock for martini. Thank you. Thank you very much, Thank you. Annalise, and I will definitely be there um, and hope many of you will uh, will join us. Um, I don't have any other closing remarks other than to thank the panel once again and uh, just remind everybody that we have a, a virtual lunchroom open, uh, which is also an opportunity where as attendees you can chat with each other and uh, and even go on video and share as we're doing here. So um, thank you very much. Uh, enjoy, you your, enjoy your lunch and um, Annalise, what, what time will we restarting? We'll start again this afternoon at 2.30. 2.30, hope to see you back. We will have a final session at 2.30 where we'll be looking at uh, India Cold Chain, um, having a discussion with a, a, a deep expert for many years about uh, how that's progressed and where it's going. We'll be looking at um, 
reefer uh, technology, uh, smart technology for reefer management at terminals, very much focused around the energy and sustainability issue. And uh, very much last, last but not least, uh, we will be hearing from um, Ted Prince joining us again, uh, who was with us last year, talking about the evolving market uh, for reefer on rail which we've been hearing about all day today in different countries, but from um, a US North America perspective. So hope you will uh, join us after lunch. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.